Hi, Jenna. Good morning. Christina Bauer with the Texas Lyme Alliance. Good morning, Christina. So nice to see you. Thank you. You too. <laughs> A little intro about Jenna. <clears throat> she has served over 35 years of policy and grassroots experience in 45 countries representing all regions throughout the world. She is recognized as uniquely qualified expert on the vital issues of transparency and accountability, human rights and the political representation of marginalized groups. Jenna has worked with both domestically and globally to improve conditions for persons with physical and mental disabilities. Her efforts have helped to overcome obstacles to education, housing, healthcare, and food and water security for groups traditionally marginalized by cultural beliefs and or economic practices. In 2016, Jenna initiated an international effort for persons suffering from Lyme and relapsing fever, borreliosis, and their human rights defenders. This resulted in meetings with the UN, special rapporteurs, and the human rights violations against such persons were entered into the UN record. Jenna's leadership contributed to changing the World Health Organization's International Diagnostic Codes, ICD-11, to include an international number of potentially fatal complications from these infections. She's worked extensively with numerous groups and governments, including multiple UN agencies, nonprofits, and the corporate world, and has spearheaded many international and multi multidisciplinary teams. Additionally, Jenna has authored over 75 publications on her areas of expertise. We're so happy to have you today, Jenna. Thanks so much for your time. I'm happy to be here. Great. So we are scheduled to do three meetings. Uh, this first one that we wanted to record for the public today is to talk about the ACA uh, PTLDS and its use and research in the Lyme disease community. Um, so getting started today, uh, what is the intention of the ACA and who does it protect? Okay, I think it's very important to understand some context Good. here. Yeah. Up until the mid-90s, even late 90s, uh, chronic Lyme disease was covered through insurance treatments, insured and covered treatments. Okay. Um, in 1991, the CDC website officially stated that symptoms of persisting infection may continue to recur and making additional antibiotic treatment necessary. Can they also said, and these are quotes from the CDC website, varying degrees of permanent damage to joints or the nervous system can develop in patients with late chronic Lyme disease. Okay, so, and it's so interesting because the website also talked about how nymph ticks frequently infect humans, which is something that they have dropped. They don't talk about nymph tick infection anymore. And they also talked about congenital Lyme causing stillbirth. Okay. So all that was part of the official language recognizing uh, the seriousness of the disease and the need for ongoing uh, treatment. Right. Um, and then, uh, of course, there's tons of evidence that Lyme, the infection of Lyme disease can persist 
the most recent um, publication that came out about that was in October 2020. And this was authored by Eva Sappi, who was primary author and multiple other authors from multiple universities um, and institutions helped to author it, including our own beloved um, Ken Legner, Dr. Ken Legner. And this publication talked about long-term persistence of Borrelia burgdorferi antigens and DNA in the tissues of a patient with Lyme disease. And they proved through various laboratories and various diagnostic techniques that in fact, this infection was persisting throughout the body in various organ and bodily symptoms. And this was a record of the patient that Dr. Ken Leitner treated many years ago, Vicki Logan. Yeah. So um, it was a very important publication because so many institutions were involved and so many diagnostic techniques were used and proved incontrovertibly that this infection can persist uh, after short-term antibiotics and even long-term antibiotic and antimicrobial treatment. So we used to have cover um, for treatment. Um, and this is de detailed um, quite a bit uh, in the book called Lyme Cure Unknown, Inside the Lyme Epidemic written by Pamela Weintraub about how we lost covered insurance and what led to Lyme patients being covered and their treatments being covered and the chronic disabling and even possibly fatal aspects of this disease being recognized mm -hmm. by the medical establishment. She covers that in detail. Great. Um, and I highly recommend that people read it to be informed Excellent. and understand the situation. And then, um, Dr. Legner also writes about this in excruciating detail in yes. his book um, called In the Crucible of Chronic Lyme Disease. And there is his patient, Vicki Logan. And here he is as a, a younger man taking care of his patient. It's such a wonderful, beautiful photo. Anyway, this book is extremely detailed and it's over 800 pages. Yeah, <laughs> crazy big. Yeah. And then of course, I also wrote a a, a more, a simpler, streamlined version of, of all of this in my book called Slime. Yeah, um, I have a cover right up here. Yeah, yeah. how medical codes mortally wound corruption and scientific fraud. But this one also gives a very good kind of uh, chronological and, and chronological overview of how we lost our care. Okay. Okay. Now, yeah. um, I, I just wanted to mention some of the specifics because Ken Legner uh, makes these remarks in, 19, in 2013 in Union Square in New York City at the Worldwide Lyme Rally. So okay. he says, Vicki Logan and other patients sued Empire Blue Cross Blue Shield to cover the cost of needed care. The case was settled out of court with terms that were confidential. Whatever the settlement was, it did not include Vicki's right to be reimbursed for the cost of intravenous antibiotic therapy, which she needed, okay? And then what happens is during the litigation, there was a deposition under oath and Senior Vice President Richard Sanchez of the Empire Blue Cross Blue Shield um, stated that Empire's accountants Deloitte and Touche advised Empire 
that their review physicians needed to issue more denials of chronic Lyme to increase its profitability. So this was not a medical or scientific decision. This was a bottom line profit-driven decision to simply deny care for chronic Lyme. So this insurance company was transitioning from a non-for-profit to a for-profit entity at the time. They raised the bar to make it more difficult for patients with costly conditions, such as Lyme diseases, to get reimbursement for treatment. Yeah. So here's the VP and his testimony said that uh, Empire senior personnel knew that some patients who actually had Lyme disease would be denied treatment and some would suffer as a result. But they rationalized it by saying that they could always appeal their denials. That doesn't work very well in our experience as patients. Well, certainly not since, since this has become a common practice. It's became um, basically deny, 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 deny. And you wear the very sick person down until they you know, have run out of time and money and, and energy to, to try to fight for, their, for the care that they are actually paying for through their insurance coverage. Okay. And then he also acknowledged that some patients might be unable to negotiate the, he said, torturous appeals process and may fall by the wayside and may sustain irreversible injury as a result. And then Empire Blue Cross and Blue Shield did transfer transit, transit into a for-profit entity. But the point is that there are many organizations at that time, insurance entities, that are going into this highly uh, competitive for-profit model under the HMO changes. And there was a decision basically to try and deny any number of chronic coverage of chronic illness and cap illnesses, meaning put a limit on how much you would cover for any number of illnesses. And chronic Lyme was one of the ones that was identified. Um, now, what they also did was they actually hired I IDSA, Infectious Diseases Doctors of America, persons who are working on the IDSA, later worked on the IDSA guidelines to deny coverage. In 2000? In, in the, in the uh, yeah, actually in the 1990s. So they were hiring IDSA people who later became guidelines authors for Lyme treatment. And these same people were hired at the cost of, let's see, he was getting over, Dotwaller, for example, was getting over $500. <laughs> uh, Siegel was one of them in 1996. He was getting $560 an hour to review Lyme disease files and deny coverage. And was he a medical physician? He was one of the, he, he, he was one of the IDSA people who was, you know, writing the Lyme guidelines to deny care and being paid $560 an hour to deny care for the insurance companies who wanted to make money. What's also interesting is that um, at that same, around that same time, uh, Congress was testifying and saying that um, it's, it's in congressional records that I collected that the average cost of treatment for chronic Lyme, I think just over $100,000. And in today's money, it, it would be over $154,000. Yeah. So there was broad recognition that Lyme was uh, you know, serious, it required expensive ongoing care, it was chronic in many cases or recurring, 
um, and who is going to pay for it. And what's interesting in the congressional records is that it was the Department of Defense that stepped in immediately to do something about it because they considered it um, a, a, a concerning ongoing cost of all their military personnel who were ex possibly exposed to Lyme during the course of their field operations because of the cost of that. Um, and also, oh, and because of the, and because it was such a debilitating illness, they were also concerned that it would affect our ability to defend our, ourselves. In other words, it would be such a widespread and disabling disease among the armed forces that it might be a national security threat. Right. So that's where we were back in the day. And then the insurance companies, with the help of IDSA, decided um, to um, basically redefine Lyme so that they did not have to cover the cost of it. Uh, but it's not just the insurance companies that wanted to um, you know, reduce the costs. As I said, the Department of Defense was very concerned about these costs, and so were many other uh, government agencies as this was spreading and its seriousness was understood. And let me just list to you the various government agencies. All of these government agencies, because of the nature of the employment contracts, would be responsible for ongoing care of their uh, civil service staff and, and any, any other government employee. They include United States Department of Defense, Department of Homeland Security, United States Postal Service, Department of Energy, Department of Interior, Department of State, Department of Transportation, Department of Health and Human Services, CDC, NIH, Department of Agriculture, Indian Health Service, Appalachian Regional Commission, Delaware River Basin Commission, Environmental Protection Agency, Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, Agricultural Research Service, Foreign Agricultural Service, uh, Forest Service, Farm Service Agency, National Institute of Food and Agriculture, Natural Resources Conservation Service, Rural Utilities Service, Bureau of Indian Affairs, Bureau of Land Management, Bureau of Safety and Environmental Enforcement, Fish and Wildlife Service, National Park Service, Office of Surface Mining Reclamation and Enforcement, Bureau of Reclamation, and United States Geological Survey. Wow. <laughs> all of these That's a lot. You know, all of these all of these agencies have people who have multiple uh, staff that need to go out into the field and be exposed to environments where there are ticks. And there are even more. I mean, this is just part of the list um, of, of all the ones that have exposure. Okay. And, and in fact, there was a, uh, a bulletin, of a, a warning bulletin from the Office of health and safety that went out to all the federal agencies back in the late 90s, talking about um, persistent infection, the need for ongoing care, how it needed to be treated very seriously, um, that it could be a chronic, persistent, and debilitating disease. Right. So that was all internal memos, an alert bulletin going out to all the federal agencies. So you have not only the insurance companies wanting to not cover the costs of providing covered care for Lyme, the US government's going, oh my gosh, this is going to be very expensive for us as well. 
So I'm just saying there's multiple actors involved in the, the denial of treatment. Um, so all of these factors together contrived to deny our care for chronic Lyme and recurring Lyme infection, episodic uh, recurrent. Now, how did we regain um, our access to care? And that's where the ACA, ACA comes in. Right. Okay. So um, the ACA is known as the Affordable Care Act. Um, it's also known as uh, Obamacare. And um, uh, in, in 2010, it was started to be formulated. And by 2012, um, the federal government asked all the states to submit what they consider to be a benchmark plan. Now, mm -hmm. to just frame the ACA a little bit more, the ACA, one of the big reasons it was needed and wanted was because the insurance companies had established a very toxic practice of denying care for chronic illness and capping care for multiple illnesses. Okay. And so when people either lost their jobs and trying, trying to buy a new, uh, get new insurance, they were just basically not uninsured and they were getting bankrupted. And yeah. the insurance companies were getting away with it for years, for years, they could just you know not cover you. If you'd had cancer before, they would give you a, a policy that didn't cover your cancer. That happened to me. <clears throat> that happened uh, to they, me. They tried to do it with me for malaria. They said, oh, well, we won't cover your blood because you've had malaria. I'm like, my blood will not be covered. So what, you know, what the insurance doesn't even make any sense. Oh, I've never, never even been hospitalized for malaria. I've just been treated, diagnosed and treated multiple times because it's everywhere in developing countries. Right. You can't really prevent it. You have to just, you know, treat it and you can, well, you can take prevention, but the prevention doesn't stop the infection and you can still get active cases. Anyway, yeah. um, so they, they made, they made a, a practice of denying care and they were also increasing the costs. costs. They were just a runaway train. Yeah. And um, it had become a major crisis in this country because not only was it denying care for people, but it was bankrupting us. Bankrupting the average family was getting bankrupted from uh, lack of coverage because our medical costs had just skyrocketed. So if they couldn't get insurance, then they, you know, they have hundreds of thousands of dollars in bills and they would go bankrupt. Now it's still a problem. Bankrupting through medical costs is still a serious problem. But the ACA was basically put in place to try and make sure that all chronic diseases that insurance companies had to cover chronic illness. Yes. Okay. And that they could not put a cap on an illness. So if you had a mental illness, for example, in the back in the day, they would cover $50,000. And then after that, you know, you had to cover the rest of the cost. Now, if you have mental illness and you needed mental health uh, support, they had to cover the cost without that cap. Okay. Same thing with cancer, same thing with heart disease, same thing with diabetes. So the ACA passed after quite a bit of struggle because as you can imagine, insurance companies did not want the ACA to pass. Right. And many of our elected officials have huge contributions from insurance. 
and on a global scale, the most powerful industry in the world now, economically powerful industry in the world now is insurance. It used to be big oil. It's now insurance by far. That's the most powerful industry. So they have a lot of power. They have a lot of power, particularly in countries that use private insurance plans. Okay. And so, just to mention, a part of that would also be the pharmaceutical industry, correct? Yes, and, and, and that's an, an interesting side. Um, it's, it's a more complex situation. They go together. They go together. They work hand in glove. That's they make right. a lot of deals. They determine what will be covered, what won't be covered. And, and just to give you an example, um, we have this thing in the United States called the CPT codes. And they determine all reimbursements and they're tied to the international ICD codes. Guess what the most profit, the, guess where the American Medical Association gets most of its profits from? The CPT codes. Right. They own and develop the CPT codes. <clears throat> so the American Medical Association, which is supposed to be representing doctors, is actually right. a huge negotiating body between the nexus of insurance, medical, uh, uh, pharma, and medical devices. And they control all the flows of money through the CPT. It's crazy. <laughs> I mean, it is, it is just, it is, it is a ball of dirt. You know, it's a uncontrolled, out of control, underregulated ball of dirt that we're dealing with. Or as I call it in the world of our element, slime. slime, slime, yes. Okay, so um, in 2012, just to go back to the Affordable Care Act. So the Affordable Care Act won. Now it's not as good as people might want it to be, but it, it gained us protection for covered care for all chronic illness. And it gained us protection from, from uh, uh, having insurance companies cap us on various conditions. So um, all the 50 states were asked to submit what they call benchmark plans to the federal government. And this was a plan that would represent the type of care provided at that state for its citizens. So you had what they then developed called the, the health care marketplace. And you had plans that were available at the state level, but then you also had a federal marketplace where anybody could go to and say, I'm going to buy this plan. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it opened up and it kind of helped to regulate some of the basic standards of what would be cared, okay. uh, uh, what would be covered. The Affordable Care Act also decided that all preventative care should be covered fully. In other words, instead of having a $50 copay to get your annual physical, you could just go and get it. Same thing for a mammogram. Okay? Right. All right. Zero cost to the patient. Yeah. Well, cost that you're already paying through your health insurance bill. Additional cost. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Now, some of this, uh, I'm going to say, has been whittled away <laughs> over the years because the um, Republican Party has been trying to destroy uh, the ACA since it was uh, created. Right. Which is... Um, I'm going to get back to that because it's an important understanding of what's happening with Lyme patients. Okay. Okay. Now, so, um, okay, so what happened is uh, the Connecticut submitted for their benchmark plan 
a plan from Connecticut. Okay. Uh, Connecticut recognized chronic Lyme. They they said that Lyme in the in their intake form, they basically considered it a chronic and recurring and episodic illness. Okay. And they recognized that it required ongoing treatment, recurring treatment, and that you could also be reinfected. And it wasn't like you got Lyme once and it went away. So they, okay. the language was such that they recognized it um, as a chronic illness. Now, mm -hmm. this particular one, um, and the ACA, yeah, the ACA made it illegal for insurance companies to have caps on a particular patient or illness and deny coverage for pre-existing conditions and chronic diseases. The ACA website makes references to specific chronic diseases and illnesses, but it's not comprehensive. There are many chronic illnesses and diseases that are not listed on the website, but they are still covered by this law. Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. There's actually a very good record of what Connecticut submitted and was was uh, accepted by the federal government under the Affordable Care Act. And okay. for Lyme disease, it says specifically, no limitations or restrictions on service. 2012, but the language okay. is still standing. It says, and it's right there on the, on the um, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And it's right there and it states that this is the benchmark plan for Connecticut. Okay. And, and lower on that same page, um, it's like a, a number of pages, but on the same page where they refer to Lyme, they say no limitations or restrictions on service. And then there's a note um, that um, certain types of cancer or disabling or life-threatening chronic diseases can have access to off-label use of FDA-approved prescription drugs. Great. That's what it states. Yeah, but it's um, not happening. <laughs> it's not happening. It's not and happening. I think, I think one of the reasons it's not happening is people don't know it. And people don't understand that once a plan is recognized at a federal level as media, as a benchmark plan, that they actually have a right to cutting certain coverage. And what I did was I went back to, um, you know, more recently that I was preparing for this interview with you to see if the language had changed at all regarding the Connecticut treatment for Lyme. And let me just read it to you because I think it's very, very important. Up to 30 days of intravenous antibiotic use or 60 days of, or 60 days of oral antibiotic therapy or both. And then it also says further antibiotic treatment if it is recommended. So this matches the language that we should have basically unrestricted access to care. Right. Determined by our physician, not an insurance company. Exactly. Yeah. So, so we could easily get 30 days of IV, 60 days of oral or both, 90 days and additional as needed. Right. So this is still enshrined even in the specific language of Connecticut, and it is still up there on the website. So sad because what I, is I wrote a, yeah, I mean, I wrote about this in 2016 and I shared this information widely 
yes. with the Lyme disease the organizations that work, you know, to help patients. And yet I don't see any mention of it in, in what they're speaking about that we actually have coverage. And just to get back to Connecticut, so in, I, I went into even further detail to see where they were specifying certain things. And they talk about ongoing treatment for Lyme arthritis, Lyme carditis, myopericarditis, encephalomyelitis, meningitis, sensory and motor radicular neuropathy or peripheral neuropathy. All of these things should be covered. Yeah. Uh, for, for extended antibiotic treatment. And, and then they say all cases of Lyme disease in pregnant women should be covered care. Yes. I mean, you know, this is right here. And people, they're, they're, people are being deflected from this information and this information is not being shared the way it should be. You know, I, well, we're I, get it out I have devoted all my life on helping people get access to access to care, access to education, access to economic opportunity. So for me, this is always my focus. What are the obstacles to access? Why aren't we getting this when this is enshrined in language at the federal level? Federal law. At the state level, by law. Okay. And we'll get back to that because there's a lot of reasons for it. Okay. Um, and the other thing is they say that you can have, you can have uh, IV course if you've just had a lab result within the last three months. You don't need to have a retest to get, uh, to get more IV or oral treatment. Um, and they say, and you can get more if you've already had an IV treatment. And they say, if the member has objective evidence of either relapse of infection very common. And progression of Lyme disease into organ damage or finding of a new focus of infection or any type of organ damage. This so this is, is no all important. about relapsing of, you don't have a relapse of infection unless you have a chronic infection. Correct. So this, this language is specifically recognizing the chronicity of the infection and that people, many people, have periods of remission and periods of active infection. Sometimes they need care and it is covered care. Good point, Jenna, very nice find. And um, this is excellent to point these details out for people to understand that they do have protection under federal law. Um, so, um, and let's talk about why they're not getting the coverage that they exactly. need under the protected law. Well, yeah. let's, so the last, one of the last points in the Connecticut document, but you'll okay. see this everywhere, is that um, treatment for post-Lyme disease or post-treatment Lyme disease is not needed. Can you repeat that, please? Basically, it says, Oral antibiotics and intravenous therapy is not considered medically necessary due to insufficient evidence of therapeutic value for treatment of post TLDS. Correct. So they talk about post treatment Lyme disease syndrome as a medical condition that does not require care. 
Can you explain for us a little bit about what post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome is or PTSD? Yes, what it is, is it's a, it's a hocus pocus ball of baloney. I also want to mention that um, the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, is also rules all, all of the um, uh, 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 treatment options through Medicare and Medicaid. In other words, you can get it through private insurance under ACA protects this, and it's also protected care for chronic Lyme under Medicare and Medicaid. And do you want to mention here JAN and ADA? Yes. Yeah, and that's really interesting. So accommodation network. Okay, very good. Yeah. And the Job Accommodation Network is a federal website of guidance that has been put together to support the American with Disabilities Act. Okay, ADA, yeah. ADA. And the American with Disabilities Act is another federal law that protects us. And what's very interesting is the Job Accommodation Network recognizes Lyme uh, complications from Lyme as a disability. Very important. So one of the things that people don't understand is they, they're having difficulty getting coverage for disabilities, short-term and long-term, when they're sick from Lyme disease. And here we have a federal agency that gives us very specific guidance on how to get and what kind of accommodations you, you are uh, entitled to by law for having chronic Lyme and complications from Lyme disease. So they don't say they don't say chronic, but they say complications, you know, from Lyme disease. Right. And they speak right. to many, many different neurological, visual, pain, et cetera, um, uh, uh, cognitive, and they go into detail and they talk about these all within the language of disability, and okay. it's really there. And I actually helped um, somebody in California get gain long-term disability uh, using this language. Okay. And it's right there, it's on the federal website. Yeah, yeah. thank you for yeah. reminding me of that. Now, I just wanted to go back to the kinetic care. So when all of this was happening, um, the uh, deputy insurance commissioner for the state of Connecticut said, you know, we might be revisiting some of these things because there's their expensive costs. And she was, in, she was a co-chair on the quality health program. Um, so she was actually working at the federal level to review all these plans. And what she determined was that none of these changes could be made without a change in legislation. And they decided not to change it legislatively and they went forward. So that was a decision. And she talked specifically about Connecticut selected an HMO plan design from Connecticut as its benchmark plan the benchmark plan provides all of the coverage mandates required by the state, which include the treatment of Lyme disease and autism spectrum <laughs> disorder, wow. which are both chronic illnesses. Yeah, but I mean, it's so interesting. So they talk very specifically recurring infection, uh, infection that goes into different parts of the body, you know, 90 days, 60 days treatment, 30 days IV, oral 60, 30, repeat both recurring as needed, you know. And it, this is at the federal level recognized as a benchmark plan. Okay, I'm okay. very excited about this because I don't understand why it's not widely disseminated information and used 
by groups that are trying to help ha people have access to care as part of the package of, of what you need to do and know, um, and even, you know, just guiding them on how to do it. All right. So let's go back to um, the post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome. Yes, right. yeah. So why is it, why is it so many people who have chronic persistent Lyme infection, maybe additional co-infections, they are told, you know, you're not sick, not really. You have post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome. Okay. Where does post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome come from? Okay, since the late 90s, and this coincided basically with government saying, shoot, we do not want to cover this illness. We have so many staff and employees and all these different agencies across the country, even across the globe that may be exposed to this infection. We will have a very high medical cost. Right. Um, and of course, the insurance companies, we don't want to cover this either. Okay, how are we going to go about denying coverage? Well, you can just deny chronic Lyme, but when people clearly have persistent infection and persistent symptoms, you can say, well, let's let's not we let's just de deny that it's an infection and let's reshape this illness as something that is much less than what it truly is and redefine it and rename it so we can deny care. And that was basically what happened. So they introduced all different types of terms: post-Lyme syndrome, post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome, post-treatment Lyme disease post-Lyme disease syndrome, and then also just post-Lyme. But what this did, what this, the, all of these terms had in common was they linked back to the corrupted IDSA Lyme guidelines that said everyone could be treated effectively within 21 to 28 days of oral medication. Correct, yeah. For acute Lyme. And as you can see from all the stuff we just discussed, that that's not the case, that many insurance companies recognize that, but, you know, IDSA members were used specifically, hired at over $500 an hour to deny this, and they wrote guidelines to support the denial. So now we have, um, since this term was introduced, post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome is the most common use uh, term of it, we have people in the field of Lyme research and medical practitioners who say that they are helping Lyme patients and researchers who claim that they have Lyme patients' interests at heart who are using this term. And they say, oh, don't worry, it's only a research term and it's a very neutral term. We're just using this term to discover what is really causing this problem. And those researchers, who are willing to use that term are able to access money from the government through grants, research grants, to study what could possibly be causing all these complications from a treatment, from an infection that was given a very restricted and insufficient treatment. So they're getting a lot of money to perpetuate this terminology. 
I want to mention here real fast, Jenna, is that um, this terminology came from um, uh, less specific studies that stated, I believe out of Hopkins, that 10 to 20% of uh, Lyme disease patients continued to suffer ongoing symptoms. Uh, but I haven't yet found a specific study that states uh, details in studying um, that particular percentage. Have you? No, it's, it's what's happened is that basically one person publishes a, a paper and then that paper gets cited and then those two papers get cited and then those three papers get cited and it never goes back to any additional evidence of anything. It's one statement that's poorly, has poor evidence backing it and then yeah. it's cited and cited and then all those three papers are cited. Then the next one that's you cites those three papers then gets cited and that becomes a fourth. So it's just this round robin of being passed around on, on, these, on these statistics and even the symptoms themselves. I mean, why is it that the care insurance page is talking about organ damage and they're just talking about fatigue? when basically everyone who has chronic Lyme actually has far more serious complications than simply fatigue. Fatigue is just one of the symptoms that can, that can recur. And this is normal fatigue for anybody else listening that isn't familiar with Lyme disease. This is no. crushing, debilitating, where you can't lift your head off your pillow fatigue or feed yourself at times. This is much different than I need to lay down for a nap. I don't feel you know, like I have the energy to go on. No, this is like, I can't get out of bed fatigue. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So what I did was because, because we have so many people in our, in our Lyme world who claim to be, you know, supporting Lyme patients and looking out for their interests who are studying and using the terminology post-treatment Lyme disease. And they claim that it is a neutral term that it doesn't, it's not harmful. I decided to actually do a deep dive and do a literature research review of all the publications at, at held in the government PubMed um, website that uses this terminology. Great detail in how PTLDS interferes with access to covered care um, mentioned in federal law. Just throwing that in. It's very important. Right. No, exactly. Know. Because, well, I was wondering why is it, given that we have the Affordable Care Act protecting us. Mm -hmm. And given that kinetic care recognizes recurring infection, reinfection, and the fact that you could need treatment as it moves into different parts of the body, you need antimicrobial treatment. And they have a far more generous um, mm -hmm. uh, treatment profile than the IDSA, which is extremely restrictive and ignores uh, all of these common complications if for late stage chronic Lyme. Right. So what happened is, um, I said, you know, is this a neutral term as certain researchers claim, or is it in fact a bias term? And is it even a research term or is it a medical term? Because the CDC and the NIH have defined it as a medical term. That's right. So any researcher who claims it's a research term is deluding themselves into thinking that it is not also a medical term. And I cannot tell you how many people I've spoken to who have been told, sorry, there's nothing more I can do for you. You have post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome 
and there is no treatment for that medical condition. That just came across my desk about a month ago. I um, provide resource for patients with the Texas Lyme Alliance and uh, connecting people with physicians. And I was helping a gentleman out of Houston, Texas, who uh, his entire family ended up getting cat scratch fever, uh, Bartonellosis from two cats who are living at their veterinarian uh, clinic because they oh. cannot come home. Uh, poor kitties, right? I mean, these animals need help too, but nonetheless, the whole family ended up getting it. Um, and uh, the father is who I have been um, communicating with had uh, reached out to me from a, another foundation who connected us uh, from New York and said um, he has not been able to get proper care for his Lyme disease and his family's Bartonellosis infection and even was referred to the uh, Lyme disease expert at John Hopkins in which this person is in control of a lot of the language around Lyme disease and the use of the term PTLDS and was denied care because he had already been treated with antibiotics. And this man told this family, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do for you because you've already been treated with antibiotics. What a shame. These whole families are being affected and not helped when they have ongoing symptoms after the initial few weeks of antibiotics that is circling as the standard of care, which is not the standard of care under federal law. Okay, so as I was saying, um, I did a broad literature review and I found 104 public publications in PubMed.gov, which is the um, library put together by our federal government on all the scientific and medical, um, on medical science um, publications. And I found 104 publications that used the terms post-Lyme syndrome, post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome, post-treatment Lyme disease, and post-Lyme disease syndrome. Um, um, I was able to review 103 of the 104 because one of them did not have a text that could be accessed by me. Okay. Um, and, and this is what I discovered. Um, you know, the claim that this is a, a term that is neutral, it is not a neutral research term. It is actually a medical term being used by both the CDC and the NIH, and they define it in the following way. Okay. The CDC does not refer to it as research terminology. The CDC refers to post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome or PTLDS as a medical condition and states that PTLDS is not treated with antimicrobials and antibiotics. And then the CDC links PTLDS to reference articles that use the term medically unexplained symptoms. MUS. And med MUS. Now, MUS is a very problematic term. It has been repudiated by the American Psychiatric Association because they found it to be overly broad and exploited. Exploited in that it was being wrongly applied to ca cases of complex multi-system illness where instead of seeking biological cause for illness, they basically wrote you off as a hypochondriac. 
Can you provide the link you found that on the CDC's website by chance? And if not, we can put it in the notes section uh, of this video. Yeah, I have all of this referenced. Okay, I'll provide it after the video for people to be able to click on and see exactly the reference where you're talking about. Thanks. Yeah, well, you have to look at the references underneath the CDC website. They list a number of references and MUS is within those references. Right. The NIH website, um, uh, makes the following statements regarding PTLDS. Again, they refer to it as a medical condition in patients who have nonspecific symptoms after being treated for Lyme disease and have no evidence of active infection, which of course, there's no way to disprove active infection. The test was studied in, uh, the traditional two-tier test was studied in 2005 and determined that 60% of the people tested with Lyme disease received a false negative. So that's, that's a, a good point to make here for those watching. Correct. But basically what they said was that they claim on the NIH website that additional antibiotic therapy is not helpful and can be dangerous. So this is directly in contrast to the federal language under the ACA, recognizing recurring infection and the ongoing need for antimicrobials, the NIH is saying, no, it can be dangerous to get treatment. Um, and then uh, they say there's no, no uh, uh, benefit from treatment. Um, and then they say it's not supported by evidence. And we all know, of course, that this so-called evidence are these extremely flawed treatment tests that were done uh, and supported by the NIH specifically and CDC to deny, um, you know, ongoing treatment. When I right. dug a little deeper into that, I discovered that they're basing their uh, qualification of ongoing treatment being potentially fatal off of one woman's treatment who actually got an infection from her port. Pick line. Yep. Or sorry, her pick line. Uh, yeah. it's not the actual, you know, uh, detrimental outcome of extended antibiotic treatment. So we need exactly. to distinguish the difference between those two things for the audience. And and I and, and the other thing that's very interesting is that they keep uh, the government keeps stats on number of, of uh, on complications from pick lines and fatalities from pick lines. And it's much higher across all these different disease, other disease categories than it has ever been for Lyme, but has never stopped anybody from using a pick line, you know, um, misusing, disinforming, um, and again, co completely contract, contradicting other medical evidence. They're conflating the outcome of one incident into something that's appearing much bigger when you narrow it down. It's very few incidences and not from extended antimicrobial care. Exactly. And precisely in that other disease categories have had far more severe and adverse outcomes than Lyme disease for using pick lines and IV. Good point, Jenna. And yet they're not, they're not denying the care there. So it's okay. okay. Um, so basically what the CDC, NIH, and IDSA have also done in defining post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome, PTLDS, is that they have excluded all the many objective symptoms. In other words, symptoms that can be proven scientifically. A okay. fever can be proven scientifically. Um, 
a cognitive decline can be proven through SPECT and MRIs. Brain lesions can be proven through MRIs. All of these complications, they basically, anything that could be objectively proven for diagnostic testing and laboratory testing, they excluded um, suppressed immune function. Uh, many of us are able to get tests showing that our T, our, our T cells are down, you right, know, documented. Right. And so they just excluded them from the definition of post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome. They make no mention of them anywhere. Here, going on in my house, I was diagnosed in 2012, just briefly for our audience. I did four years of antibiotics and uh, had a port and a pick line and tested positive again six years later for Borrelia in 2018. So the treatment, uh, ongoing antibiotics, um, it still doesn't work. It's not curative. So uh, some of their language is correct in that extended antibiotic uh, therapy um, is ineffective and not curative, but that does not mean that people should be banned from utilizing these treatments because for some other people, it does put them in remission. I don't think the term ineffective is accurate. I think the term curative is accurate. It's not, it doesn't cure, but it can certainly help people. It can help manage symptoms and it can put people into remission. And also remission. to take a point, there are other illnesses that um, are treated when symptoms arise with antibiotics. And they are also treated long-term with antibiotics. All number of soft tissue infections, tuberculosis can resurge. And of course, the proof that syphilis, syphilis. can be treated and then recur. Um, you know, all of these things. I mean, we have shingles, um, which is an infection that we get early in life. Just for the audience, syphilis is a cousin of Lyme disease. And can resurface and get additional antibiotic treatment, but Lyme disease cannot. Right, so that's another, it's another spiroketal infection. So I'm just saying, so Lyme is being treated in a very unique and discriminatory fashion. And Lyme patients are being treated in a very unique and discriminatory fashion compared to other diseases that are recurring infections that staph infections, MRSA, for example, no doubt that you need ongoing care and treatment for MRSA. Uh, no doubt you need ongoing care and treatment for syphilis should it recur. No doubt you need ongoing care for tuberculosis that can be treated and then resurface. Okay, you can have a resurgence, but for Lyme, it's not the case. So uh, again, this goes back very much to the cost of the care, which I think sets pants on fire in the late 90s when it went into congressional record that it cost at least $100,000 for treatment. Mm -hmm. And they recognized that it was widespread. It was moving everywhere in the country. There was a great deal of exposure. And if anybody understands vector-borne diseases, for example, I, I referred to malaria. Um, at one point, I tested for five different strains of malaria. Do I have an active case of malaria? No. Did I do prevention for malaria? Yes, but you cannot prevent infection from a small insect if you are in a place in the world where that insect is everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so the prevention basically just knocks back the infection so that you don't get an active case. 
and nymph ticks and ticks are everywhere. And so it's very hard to avoid infection of Borrelia. Very, very hard. You know, there's a lot of focus on prevention, but again, you know, it, nymph ticks are not even visible to the eye. You don't even know you've been bitten. So, you know, it's kind of like if you got infected once with malaria and then you showed another case of malaria and they decided not to not to treat you because you've already been treated once for malaria. I mean, it's, it's, crazy. it's, it's absurd. It's absurd. Right. Okay. But that's a, the vector-borne diseases are very tricky, particularly ones that are easily transmissible, like malaria and like Morelia, which is very easily transmissible. Okay. Anyway, so I just wanted to get back to um, MUS. So uh, uh, the CDC and NIH basically are still saying people who have ongoing symptoms, first of all, only have minor symptoms. They're ignoring the objective symptoms that can be easily quantified and, and are actually quite severe. And they have redefined this to a mild illness, talking about fatigue as though it's just some fatigue, the average aches and, and pains of daily life, when in fact, that's not the case. But by doing this, they can basically say there's no need for care. And then basically, MUS is a psych condition that does not require anything except for maybe some cognitive therapy behavior. So even though you have the American Psychiatric Association repudiating the term, Thank you. Yeah. And they are the specialists in this terminology, they repudiate it, and yet the CDC and the NIH is applying it to this patient group. Um, and they repudiated it some years ago, okay. um, very th thoroughly in the DSM-5. Okay. Okay, so. And the DSM-5 is the diagnostics code just for our audience for the uh, psychology. Uh, yeah, psychiatric illnesses, Thank psychiatric you. illnesses. So when I, so, so first of all, let's just recognize that post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome and the related terms are not mechanistically neutral research terms. Okay. They are medical terms as defined by the CDC and the NIH is not requiring any care as occurring after you've been adequately treated on a very short course of antibiotics and are defined by very simple, moderate, kind of just annoying little symptoms. So every time a researcher says, I'm using this as a research term, they are reinforcing its use as a medical term. These things cannot be divorced from each other because the researcher in Johns Hopkins is not the one defining the term. It's the CDC and the NIH that have defined the term. And it's the researcher who is borrowing that term and allowing it to be promoted. Okay, now researchers are using it because they get money from the NIH when they use that term in their studies because the NIH wants to, and the CDC and the government and the insurance companies they want to perpetuate this denial of care and denial of the seriousness of the disease. So what did I find when I did the review of 103 publications? 70 of the 103 publications exclude infection as a cause for post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome, and they exclude the need for treatment of an infection. 
20 of the 103 indicate infection is a possible cause of persistent symptoms among many other possible causes. Only 13 of the 103 publications focus on antimicrobial and antibiotic treatment for infection that causes the recurring symptoms. Out of the 103, there are very few researchers investigating treatments to address persistent Lyme infection. Right. Only three of the 103 publications broaden the recurring symptoms to include severe complications such as cardiac and neurological. So what does that tell us? That tells us that the research that the research, oh, and finally, sorry, among the 70 that exclude infection as a possible cause, there is a focus on psychological and psychiatric disorders and post-infectious, possible post-infectious autoimmunity mm -hmm. that excludes Lyme infection. Even a form of neuroborreliosis, they say, you can have that does not have Lyme, Lyme infection, but you have neuroborreliosis. So this is not a neutral term. This right. is a term right. that clearly steers patients into psychiatric treatment for an infection that's been proven to persist. Now, who, who funds these treatments? Who funds, rather, who funds these studies? Right. National, it's mostly, U.S. government. Um, it's the National Institutes of Health, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke, the National Institutes of Mental Health, the National Center for Resources, Research Resources, and the Department of Energy. And the numbers of Lyme publications regarding PTLDS began to increase rapidly in 2013 and gained more uh, government funding. Prior to 2013, there were only 17 publications. Wow, why do you think that is, Jenna? Whereas 86 um, articles were published on PubMed between 2013 and 2020, and of these 86, 59 excluded infection. Just to note that the reasons uh, that we're not mentioning um, negatively uh, people's names, et cetera, is because this is an interview for educational and informational purposes only. And our views are not related to anyone but our own personally. Um, so it's very important for people to do their own research on the um, terms and situations that Lyme disease patients are under that are being mentioned today and arrive at their own conclusions. But this is for educational purposes. So I um, am very grateful that you're bringing up these particular instances and piecing together for the community and uh, organizations um, outside of the Lyme community to help get patients the necessary care that we need. And um, I'm sure that uh, we've got a little bit more to discuss, but I just wanted to throw in here 
that um, these publications that Jenna has authored and the articles that she's covered, a lot of this information can be found on LinkedIn under Jenna Luce-There. Go ahead, Jenna, with um, your discussion about your PTLDS um, study that you did. So, so um, what's also interesting is, is not just all the exclusion of infection, the fact that this is clearly a very biased term, the fact that it's not serving the patient community, that it's reinforcing um, uh, an invalid, non-evidence-based uh, um, uh, push towards psychiatric care for an underlying infection. Um, I also noted that nine of the studies that ignore infections were actually, uh, that, that ignored that infection can cause these recurring symptoms were funded by Lyme nonprofits. Thank you. Who advocate on behalf of patients. And I found this very concerning. Why would Lyme nonprofits step in and fund things that are not actually looking at infection when they say they are concerned about chronic Lyme? So I did a, a deep dive on one of the particular organizations, and um, I just will give you some of the findings there. Okay. Uh, I think this is also important. Yeah, um, it is. Yes. So one organization I chose because it's been around for a long time. It has a very high national profile compared to other ones. And I found of the 11 studies that they funded using the term post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome and post-Lyme treatment symptoms, five of the 11 focus on psychosomatic and psychiatric disorders in relationship to these symptoms, five of the 11. One looked at persistent infection and possible drug therapies. Two looked at autoimmunity as a possible cause. One looked at genetic causes. And one looked at the Lyme test. So on balance, basically, that you know, the majority of them looked at psychiatric and psychosomatic disorders. This does not really serve the Lyme patient community if an organization that says they're advocating on behalf of people suffering from persistent infection are funding studies that look at psychosomatic disorders that might cause uh, symptoms. So okay. do you think that some of this is, um, first of all, we're all very grateful to all of the Lyme disease advocates and foundations who fight for Lyme patients. Um, this is not to throw anyone under the bus, however, uh, do you think that uh, a Lyme disease foundation who is in fact taking money from Lyme disease patients and their donors on behalf of them would fund a study like this for uh, the purposes of um, giving too much control maybe to the researcher selected? Why would you think a Lyme disease foundation who is basically in business to support Lyme disease patients would in fact spend Lyme patients money on funding research around something that could harm patients. Why would you think that? Well, this goes back to what we looked at, what I looked at, you know, suddenly there was an explosion after 2013 of funding of post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome. Right. So clearly right. what was happening was that the advocacy community was gaining strength and the persistence of the infection was gaining ground 
And so there was a pushback, a very organized pushback to redirect and refocus. And what happened is around 2011, some of the Lyme and 2013, some of the Lyme advocacy groups were actually approached by government to go into research with them. And the same actors, um, the National Institutes of Health, National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, National Institute on Drug Abuse, National Institute on Neurological Disorders and Stroke, National Institute of Mental Health, and National Center for Research Resources and Department of, and Department of Energy basically co-funded research, gave money, big pots of money that these groups might not normally have to do research, and that research was steered towards psychiatric. So they were able to basically very easily deflect um, a Lyme organization that had a national profile on persistent infection and push them into another line with the promise of partnership and monies. And this is the same thing I, I would say I observed has happened with researchers. A researcher might start out dedicated to doing something about chronic infection, but then the grant says, hey, we'll give you a grant, but you have to look at psychiatric or autoimmunity or anything but persistent infection. And I would like to throw in here on my own work, uh, I have started um, as of this year, uh, just in June legally, um, our own foundation. And in doing so, what I've discovered is um, researchers will take money and research whatever you pay them to research. So I think this is an important point that um, as a foundation, we have to have a strong backbone representing the patient group and not um, allowing these entities, governmental or beyond, to influence where our money goes for research because we, we have to take this control back um, as foundations to continue to support those that we're supposed to be representing. So I think that's a really important point to make that we, we do have the control and we need to continue to keep taking that control back to um, foster the studies and pay for those research studies that are going yeah. to continue to get to the bottom of why patients continue to suffer debilitating symptoms after the initial appropriate care. We know it's because they have infection. That's not yeah. being treated. So, I mean, the answer well, is there. The this is called you know. science suppression. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and there may be other things in addition to infection, but infection is the underlying cause. And that, again, has been proven again and again and again. And what happens is, you know, the government dangles these little shiny objects and right. money right. and grants. And then you get a group of people who should be looking at, you know, access of care accessing care to for care for for infection for infection excuse me and they get sidetracked and now they're talking about oh it could be this it could be that and it might be good for their careers it might be good for their found you know their research centers etc but it's not helping the patients when they get distracted by these other things and in fact even autoimmunity is really the body attacking an underlying infection including the human cells that are involved with that infection so there's not a separation between autoimmunity 
and subclinical infection or even clinical infection. To just give you my personal story, I was diagnosed yes. with uh, five autoimmune conditions, two which were very serious, multiple sclerosis and lupus. That's right. And three that were more minor. And then these were all autoimmune diseases. And, um, you know, when I got finally diagnosed with Lyme and treated, my so-called autoimmune diseases resolved. Can you mention briefly the differentiation between the cost to treat MS and lupus versus what it actually costs you to treat the underlying root cause of sure. those autoimmune diseases? I think that's very sure. important for people to maybe listening from the government and you know Medicare, Medicaid. Sure, I, re I did not accept my, my autoimmune disease diagnoses because it didn't make sense given I had so many things going on that was not explained by these illnesses. Correct. But if I had accepted just my MS, MS alone, just that, that illness alone, if I accepted that over the 10 years between I was diagnosed with that and um, diagnosed with Lyme, they would have made half a million dollars off of me easily, easily. And instead my first treatment of Lyme cost $800. Over the course of how long? A six months of antibiotics. And then I did uh, generic antibiotics. And then I, I did a retreatment. Um, you know, I've been in remission, but you know, it comes and goes quality of remission. And I did a retreatment and that treatment cost about $800. Oh, that was with disulfiram. Okay. So, but the point is, yes, I mean, I, I, and, and if I had gone even further, like from now, from the time I was treated to the time now when I was, so that's $1,600 $1, for two rounds of different treatments. And then instead, if I had continued to treat for MS, um, I would now be well past the million dollar mark. Well past a million dollar mark, and I'd be much sicker. So my my Lyme would have continued to just ravage my body, and I might have you know had some symptom relief maybe, but I would be physically in much worse shape because my 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 immune system, which is already compromised, would have been further compromised. Correct. Okay. So uh, just to get back to the funding though. Yes. One of the things that I noticed that was really concerning when I was looking at this Lyme nonprofit that we got funding was that one of the funders is the Oxford Immunotech that owns Immugen, and they funded. Now, why this this organization at the time, um, uh, well, it still does. It's now owned by Quest Diagnostics since 2018, but Oxford Immunotech and Immunogen um, is an organization that does Lyme diagnostic testing. So why does a group that's diagnosing an infection, why are they funding research on psychosomatic and psychiatric PTLDS? Deflection. Well, but not only that, why? I mean, why wouldn't they be looking at infection and improving diagnostic? Right. Why are they looking at funding psychiatric reasons for ongoing symptoms. And um, if you go to their website, you will find that basically they make many statements to discourage Lyme diagnostic uh, testing. Um, they say, if you live in a Lyme endemic area, that doesn't mean you have Lyme. They say, if you have the following symptoms, that doesn't mean you have Lyme. They basically discourage people 
from getting tested for Lyme and they are a Lyme diagnostic testing company. They're not the gold standard, just so everybody can right, look at right. the but I'm just saying standard. it doesn't make any sense. You would think it, you know, except that they have ties back to the IDSA guideline authors, you know, at least they did originally. Okay. Um, and so it's all about denial of this chronic persistent and very dangerous, potentially fatal illness. Um, so um, just to you know, there are many reasons why researchers are taking money on PTLDS because researchers live off of grants. Right. But when Lyme organizations um, uh, partner with those researchers and or they accept monies from these uh, government groups and focus on post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome, and on quote unquote psychiatric psychosomatic causes for it, they are causing actually a great deal of harm because they are actually now cooperating with the government's denial and insurance denial of care. Perpetuating the illness. Yes, they actually are actually creating conditions of harm. So what happens when they support these, this kind of research? PTLDS and PTLS um, research. Because it is defined as a medical condition by the CDC and NIH that does not require care. When they fund it, when Lyme nonprofits help fund this, they lend credence to the unproven theory that psychosomatic and psychiatric disorders cause symptoms. Correct. And they are adding to a body of literature on the topic of psychosomatic and psychiatric disorder causation of post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome, instead of adding to infection causality of these complications. Um, they also can be seen as promoting the preferred ideology of the Infectious Disease Society of America against Lyme patients. And the IDSA, as you know, just came out with a new guideline, which is exactly the same and even worse than the 2006 guideline. Um, and so patients, that guideline does not help us at all. And of course, it contradicts our protections under the Affordable Care Act. Federal law. It contradicts it. Um, Okay, so when Lyme, Lyme nonprofits focus on this type of research, um, it creates mixed messages that, that the advocates publicly may say that they recognize persistent infection, but then at the same time, their research is aligned with treatment that restricts, is restricted to psychosomatic and psychiatric disorders. MUS, that carrying yeah. forward the old dogma, correct. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's just not a good thing for Lyme nonprofits to be using the terminology and to be funding any research that uses the terminology. Correct. And, and, and you know, it's concerning because we now have more and more Lyme nonprofits that think that if they work with government, that they will bring government along to change. 
but we know that that has not worked to date. And I just wanna say, how do we know that it does not work to date? Well, the Tick-Borne Disease Working Group wrote a report to Congress in 2018 in which they use the term post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome multiple times. And they made no reference to the Affordable Care Act in that document, none. Right. Now, do they make reference to any other um, federal legislation that affects Lyme patients? Yes, they did. They talked about the American with Disabilities Act. Um, they did not go far enough in talking about it because they said it covered adequately the protections for Lyme patients, but they omitted the Affordable Care Act, completely omitted any language and reference to this federal law and our protections under the law. So to think that working for a number of years with um, the Tick-Borne Disease Working Group, which is mostly stacked with federal people, and to have no mention whatsoever. I have not heard any mention of the Affordable Care Act in this last round of discussions that's going into the next report. There's no mention of the Affordable Care Act and our protections. <clears throat> Still. And the other, the other thing is that, you know, we talk about having elected officials and lobbying. When you look at the Lyme Caucus, There are many, many members on the Lyme Caucus that have voted against the Affordable Care Act again and again and again. I've tried to take it down. Why are they on the Lyme Caucus? Why are they trying to eradicate a federal protection for chronic Lyme patients that has detailed? It doesn't make any sense. So I think that if we have wealthy donors and wealthy foundations and nonprofits that are interested in pursuing you know, access to care for patients, then they should decouple from these entities that are swaying and moving them into post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome or simply refuse to use that terminology and insist on focusing on chronic infection as an underlying cause for these symptoms. I'd like to mention here um, that uh, you know a few positive things that are going on in the Lyme community now. Um, mm -hmm. for, for instance, Bay Area Lyme Disease Foundation has done an excellent job taking off all reference on their website for persistent Lyme disease, uh, sorry, PTLDS, oh, and they have revamped their entire website. I'm so, so proud to be affiliated with them and partner with them um, because they have, uh, well, first of all, they're the wealthiest foundation in the United States representing Lyme patients. That's very important because money speaks um, mm -hmm. all the way around, and they have replaced all information and studies hosted on their website mentioning PTLDS and autoimmunity uh, associated with PTLDS with uh, PLD, persistent Lyme disease. So they're getting it. 
and it's taking yeah. hold in the foundational community. I'm a proponent for the studies that are on our website at Texas Slime Alliance for all studies uh, since 2005 on persistence. This is um, recognized around the community as the way to go in regard to how to get help for patients um, is to recognize these peer-reviewed, validated studies that are scientifically driven and proven um, to be uh, gold standards in um, recognizing that PTLDS is a myth and persistence does happen in other diseases, including Lyme disease, uh, borreliosis, uh, relapsing fever, et cetera. Um, and we have to keep lifting these foundations up that are doing the right thing for patients and representing them in getting them uh, proper access to care, treatment, and diagnostics. I'll also mention that um, uh, Bay Area Lyme has uh, funded privately over 50 biobanks on Lyme disease. And some of these uh, researchers who go to access this material from them pay for um, the material to research, but also they donate for free a lot of this material for research when they privately fund uh, in their own grants uh, to researchers. So I want to make the note that there are positive things happening in the Lyme disease community. There is a lot of money that's being asked for uh, with the Center for Lyme Action, but you know, the money is, um, and of course the Coens, uh, God bless them and, and everybody who is trying to do our best to get money circulating for the increase in infection for Lyme disease, that we have to hold these people accountable and that their uh, research that this money is going to be going toward um, uh, is, uh, for instance, the Coens is a lottery for a diagnostic. Uh, to be developed, $25 million dedicated toward that. And uh, we're asking with the Center for Lyme Action, $52 million for Lyme disease research. Now, new money is a really great thing, but uh, Jenna, I know you are a big advocate for this. Where is this money going to be going? And so that's why we're advocating for more money so that we have new researchers uh, attracted to the field of Lyme disease and infectious disease, tick-borne illness, that do not carry that old dogma of suppressing science on persistence. And that is where it gets real exciting uh, to be involved in the Lyme disease community right now and in, in, um, helping along these foundations who are funding um, studies on persistence, not uh, PTLDS, and continue to partner with building alliances with those who are not suppressing science and who are getting it. Patients are getting better, like my family, um, by treating persistence. If I'd have given up with, uh, what, two to six weeks of initial antibiotic care in 2012, I'd still be in bed, bed-bound having seizures. Um, I wouldn't be back in the kitchen and back in the community, um, you know, uh, contributing to my community and volunteering at schools and in my home. Um, my kids were also uh, at times bedbound having seizures, not all of them, but uh, one in particular, the other one had been very sick. So my point here is 
that when we focus on the root cause of illness, we can get better as Lyme patients, just like you did. And just like I did times five. Um, it's not just me that treated persistent infection. It's my kids too. I was just going to say though, I think, you know, all of, a lot of Lyme nonprofits, they talk about improving access to care. Okay. And what I want to emphasize is that we actually have access to care that's federally protected. Thank you. And, and they need to get that message out. They need to support that. The recent lawsuit um, with Tory versus eight different insurance agencies and members of the IDSA guideline authors and those that have been actively denying medical treatment on, on behalf of insurers. As you know, the eight insurance companies have settled. That is major. That is major. But the point is that we should be using our access to care framework now immediately. And yes, treatments need to improve. Yes, diagnostics need to improve. But while those improvements are going forward, we need to be able to access the care that is available. That's right. It's a matter of many people living and many people having any quality of life. And yes, it would be great if we get a cure someday, but frankly, there are many diseases that still have no cure, but if you have access to treatment, you can have some good quality of life. And so let's ensure that access to care is pushed and support for access to care now and immediately is pushed. And we do not get distracted on just improving diagnostics and therapies because access to care is the day-to-day greatest obstacle for most patients living with Lyme disease and other co-infections and tick-borne diseases. That is the greatest problem and obstacle they have to any quality of life. That's right. So I think, you know, I, I just want to keep that priority right out there. You know, that needs to be done. And we do it by recognizing protections under the ACA, informing people, using the legal leverage that that provides, winning our disability cases using the Job Accommodation Network and the ACA. Uh, we found a doctor in that disability case I talked about that recognized chronic Lyme, you know? <laughs> I mean, because that information was provided. They were not part of the IDSA, you know, group. It was an independent. Anyway, but the point is that we have to keep doing this and, and we have to, you know, not accept funding that is tied to looking at post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome as a psychiatric and psychosomatic condition. I'm not saying that people don't develop psychiatric and psychosomatic complications, exactly. but that is not the cause. Right. Um, anyone with chronic illness can develop these complications, anyone, psychiatric and psychosomatic. But the fact is that we have to repudiate funding that is tied to looking at that as a cause. Especially within private foundations who have a, an obligation to uphold the rights of the marginalized in the Lyme disease community for patients to 
be represented properly. Um, I think that's really important to continue to lift up the foundations like Bay Area Lime, Texas Lime Alliance, GNID.World, your foundation. Um, these well, mine's, mine's not on the foundations, just a very basic nonprofit. But I also wanted to mention that, you know, back in 2018, Lyme disease organization said that we, that, you know, should we get rid of post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome? And I was very happy that they came out with that statement to the Tick-Borne Disease Working Group that they said it's causing harm. They recognize it's causing harm. But here we are two years later, and yet still so many researchers are using the term and claiming that it is mechanistically neutral, research neutral, when it's not. We know it's not. I mean, we just have seen so many people. I hear get people all the time. I get calls. I get emails saying, I've just been told I have post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome and I cannot get any treatment. And then what happens to those patients like my family and yours is that we have to then go out on our own and be able to afford private care via cash payment only for the treatments that work. And that is why we're doing this interview today is to increase access to care and get the coverage that Lyme patients need for extended antibiotic care or what's working uh, needs to be studied more. and. Um, these research dollars funneled into the um, Lyme Foundation that are properly representing patients and, and patients' rights to uh, federally protected care, as you've mentioned, out of the ACA. We have got to continue to work to increase awareness in the Lyme disease community to get rid of all use of the mythical term PTLDS, post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome. And um, please, uh, audience- Refer who to it as persistent Lyme. Uh, what was the term that Bay Area Lyme calling it? Persistent Lyme. Persistent Lyme disease, PLB. Chronic Lyme, it's the same darn thing. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. And so we have to continue to get this message out to the community at large, not just the Lyme community, right? Because they're all at risk too. Uh, anybody who goes outside or has a dog or a cat come in with a flea or um, uh, as far as bartonellosis, but um, uh, ticks on them can, can be at risk for I, I also think that we need to be very careful into who we choose to be our political allies. If we choose political allies that are trying to get rid of the Affordable Care Act, we're not helping ourselves. That's right. Because insurance companies have been our enemies on this. And the Affordable Care Act has been, has been the one thing that has come back in, in protection of our access to care, covered access to care. So that's another thing. Who do you pick as your allies? Um, we should look at the Lyme Caucus and see if any of them are actually doing something to improve our access to covered care. Uh, we should look at all of our researchers to see what they are doing to ensure that infection is recognized and treatments for infection and diagnostics for infection should be the priority as opposed to these other distractions. Um, so I think it's very important, particularly when you have limited resources, you know, um, there's a reason why all this money came in to basically divert researchers and groups from chronic infection. I mean, that was a very, it was done on purpose. 
you know, to, excuse me, calculated. It was calculated. Yeah, yeah it was calculated. Yeah. And it, it has, and it has diverted a lot of time and energy and resources away from persistent infection. And it's allowed the debate to continue. And there's really no debate. I mean, we have proof of persistent infection in yeah. many diseases, including Lyme disease. We know that persistent infection needs ongoing treatment and or episodic treatment. That's right. And, there, and we know this and, uh, and um, anyone who keeps us distracted from that is winning. <laughs> so. Yeah, and the thing of it is I, I wanted to note here is that insurance companies, Medicaid, Medicare, we're not helping ourselves in denying persistent Lyme because uh, it, the cost continues to go up in society. The cost continues to go up globally uh, and, and within our own home. If I got the proper treatment when I was eight years old and first bit by a tick and suffered from um, juvenile arthritis-like symptoms and um, tachycardia, et cetera, very bad chest pain as a very small child, um, ongoing sinus infections, et cetera, had a lot of the hallmark symptoms of uh, persistent Lyme disease. If I'd have gotten the care that I needed while the infection was acute and not disseminated, we could have saved hundreds of thousands of dollars within my own home. I would have stayed within the workforce where I was forced uh, last year to close my business after 14 years of private investment and hard work and sweat, blood, and tears uh, to take care of our 12-year-old son at the time who was um, severely suffering from ongoing persistent Lyme disease symptoms that he got from me at birth. And, you know, uh, these kids have all missed a lot of school, uh, like, like I did in uh, grade school, high school, and college was very different, difficult uh, getting through. We're the toughest um, uh, people that I know in the world, uh, Lyme disease patients, and um, we'll continue to fight on and forge the way for other patients to get uh, properly diagnosed, access to care with treatments that work. And I just want to say thank you so much, Jenna, for spending your time with me today. And uh, for anybody watching, um, what can you do? And what you can do is to write and phone call. And um, of course, we're in a COVID situation, but go see your legislators. Um, ring their bell and ring it often. Um, be the squeaky wheel. I encourage everybody to represent yourself in the best way that you can by being loud and making sure that you demand accountability and transparency in these new funds that are being floated around in the government and, and the private sector for Lyme disease. We will be hosting two more interviews with Jenna in January, and those are going to be focused on ACA and the ICD-11 codes. I'm very proud to bring Jenna back for another interview on how she has achieved the Herculean effort, Dr. Ken Legner says. Um, I agree with that Jenna has Herculean the effort in achieving to get us 11 new ICD codes in, for Lyme disease. And now we have 15 ICD codes when we go to the doctor that will come uh, apparent in the drop-down box to, to get uh, treatment that we need for Lyme disease when we go to see our doctors. So 
we're going to be coming back and talking about that. And then another one in January, we're going to be talking about how to hold the government entities um, accountable in offering transparency as well around the ACA and the ICD-11 codes. Is there anything else that you'd like to mention here, Jenna? Well, it's not, it's beyond, it's actually beyond the um, ICD and the ACA. It's actually just holding the government accountable for uh, practices and, and objectives that they are obliged to regarding Lyme patients. That's right. Even without so, the ICD-11 and without, without um, ACA in place, there are certain things that they should be doing that they have been not doing um, that um, one of my jobs, one of my many areas of responsibility when working as a senior advisor to the U.S. government was to ensure that agency annual plans um, had hard metrics that met their stated missions, mission statements, and, and stated goals. So that's what I'm talking about there um, and how to go about doing that and what should be done. Um, uh, the Lyme, Lyme community has had no hard metrics to represent it in, in the federal agencies or even the state agencies. Wonderful. So, okay. Well, we'll um, dive a little deeper into those things okay. in January and I uh, want to wish everybody a Merry Christmas and Happy Hanukkah and Happy Holidays and same to you and your family, Jenna. I so appreciate your time on behalf of the Lyme disease patient community. We're so, so everly grateful for your hard work and dedication and loyalty, loyalty <laughs> to the patients and patients only that you say you represent, you really do. And so I just want to give a big hug to you and your family for um, your, your constant ever going loyalty and dedication to stay true to um, your, your time and efforts to dedicate to this community. We so appreciate you. And thank you also, Chris, Christina, for yours. Uh, I've, enjoyed working with you so many times over the years and we we need we need this kind of teamwork across our various efforts to make a change it's extremely important thank you so much for that and it's it's about saving lives it's not about throwing people under the bus or kicking people in the teeth it's about access to care and getting people back into the workforce to help the community these people need to come off disability these people need to get back into helping raise healthy kids and uh, being a part of volunteering in their schools and being a part of the community and an active participant in life and improving the quality of the life that, um, you know, they help with, with uh, raising their children. So thank you so much from my heart to yours uh, and to the Lyme disease community. Hang in there, folks. We're trying our <laughs> best to, to get uh, access to care and uncovering some of these unfortunate incidences over the year and turn the tide for patients to uh, receive uh, proper diagnostic care and um, treatments that work. So thanks, Jenna, and Merry Christmas to everybody, and God bless y'all. <laughs>